with me as we rise to read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn in your Bibles. I hope you have one to Haggai chapter 2. If you don't know how to find that minor prophet, a simple way to get there is to turn to Matthew, the first book in the New Covenant, and the New Testament. Turn left about three books, and you'll get to Haggai uh, chapter 2. We come to the very end of Haggai's ministry this morning on these wonderful sermons to the people there rebuilding the temple as we come to verse 20 through 23. So it's a very short text that I trust will bring us a simple encouragement this morning. So let me read these four verses for us and then I pray for our time and we'll begin. So here now as God speaks to us through his word. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the nations of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that you would comfort us this morning. According to your covenant word, that you would encourage discouraged hearts, that you would strengthen weary souls in your promise and in your power. I do send your spirit into our minds that we might listen attentively, that we might respond with meekness and repentance, knowing, of course, that we are, are never entrusted and promised even another sermon beyond this day. Help me to preach as you say I must, knowing that I too am never promised to preach another sermon beyond this day. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of C.S. Lewis's more well-known books is entitled Screwtape Letters. I imagine a number of you have read that book before, perhaps a letter here and there, or maybe are aware of what the book is all about. It's essentially this conversation between two demons and how they can tempt a subject that's known as the patient, quote, unquote. And so you have Screwtape, who's the senior demon that's encouraging this younger novice deacon, demon by the name of Wormwood. And along the way, Wormwood is trying hard to tempt the patient to lead him astray, to, of course, put him on that broad path that leads on the way to hell. And some of the schemes work. Some of the schemes aren't working quite as well. And in one of the conversations that is relatively long, but you can sum up quite simply, it seems as though Wormwood is telling Screwtape, I just don't know what to do. You know, I've been ransacking the encyclopedias. I've been looking through the resources that exist and how we can lead the patient astray. And what do you think about discouragement? Because it's in the books here. And Screwtape essentially says, well, yeah, use discouragement. That's bound to work. And you might come in here today and find yourself in a state of discouragement. 
Certainly, when Haggai burst onto the scene there in this prophetic book, God's people were full of discouragement. Uh, You might be in a season where you've been asking and asking and asking of the Lord, yet he hasn't yet answered. Or perhaps you're in a season where you've been waiting, waiting, and waiting some more, and his promise hasn't been yet fulfilled. Or perhaps you're wanting and wanting and wanting his strength, and yet every day you seem to wake up weaker and weaker and weaker. Uh, So this is a word that's meant to encourage you. A final summary word here in Haggai's ministry to strengthen your soul, to exhort your heart, to encourage your mind. What you want to see, of course, by the end of Haggai's ministry is all God is doing through this man named Zerubbabel, and of course, by extension to the rest of the people at this time, and even further into the future, to people like you and me. All he's wanting to do is encourage discouraged people in God's signature promise. And what we're going to see by the end is that signature promise is just a person. So whenever you come to prophetic books in the Old Testament, you need to recognize that there's always a particular historical context to each book. And if you don't understand the historical context, it's very easy, isn't it, to to misunderstand the, the prophet's message. So so maybe it's been a few weeks since you were able to remember what's going on in Haggai's time. Maybe this is the first week you've ever studied Haggai before. And so here's the simple context that you need to know uh, going on in Haggai's ministry. Of course, God's people, a large portion of them, have returned from the exile. And when they returned to the land, uh, we're told that they kind of quickly began the work about rebuilding the temple. Uh, But actually, quite quickly also, uh, their rebuilding work fell away, they slowed down, and they became more earnest about using those same panels that belonged to the temple to build their nicely paneled homes, and their apathy for God's temple being rebuilt was really nothing more than a spiritual reality about their apathy for God's presence in their midst. And so God sends this preacher named Haggai uh, to call them to repent, to consider their ways, to tell them to get back on track with the building project that is the temple. So Agai shows up at the end of August 520 BC. And he preaches this sermon of repentance. It's a sermon that's used by the Spirit to awaken a turning away from the sin and a turning to righteousness in the people's lives. And about six weeks goes by. And they're they're kind of rebuilding the temple. They're at least getting the project started once again. But then by the time Haggai shows up in the middle of October of 520 BC, it's kind of hit another stall. And we saw that a few weeks ago with the beginning of chapter 2 where they're utterly discouraged. And you need to know that part of that discouragement is the fact that they're aware quite well by this point that what they're rebuilding is not going to be this wonder to the watching world that was Solomon's temple. It's going to, in many ways, just be this small echo of former glory. And so if you glance back up to chapter 2, verse 4, God encourages them, this discouraged people, And what is the central reality of his covenant grace? You see in verse 4 of chapter 2, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, work, for I am with you according to my covenant that I made when I brought you out of Egypt. So his covenant grace continues, his covenant presence continues. So so get back to work. And then, 
course, work is continuing. Now, by the time we get to where we are in our text today, we're now in the middle of December. December 18th, to be precise, in 520 BC. This is the day in which the foundation stone was laid. And what we saw last week was, is that Haggai showed up and, and preached a first sermon on December 18th. And it was a sermon that called God's people to remember that in light of their repentance... Uh, that God was taking the covenant curses, turning them into covenant blessings. And you'll see the end of that first sermon on December 18th, verse 19 concludes, but from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. So you might think that that simple statement would be enough to encourage discouraged people. From this day forward, showers of blessings are going to come upon you. Well, you might be like the people at this time and, and need more than that. Perhaps your situation says, well, that's great, Lord, but. And so what you'll see is the text moves us in verse 19 of Haggai 2 from this day. So if you just glance down to verse 23 of chapter 2 to that day. Uh, what the prophet is doing in God's power is moving the people's attention from their present circumstances to the future reality that is on the way according to God's promise. And students, you, you need to know that so much of the Christian life in every way is about living in the present in light of what God has promised in the future. That you live now in light of then. And that's what God is trying to do here at the end of Haggai's ministry. It's simply a text that encourages in a summary way God's people to look to his coming king. That's all you need to know about this final sermon from Haggai. Look to God's coming king. And it has two simple sections. First of all, in the first three verses, we'll walk through it under the heading of the shaking of kingdoms. And then in verse 23, the setting of a king. So the shaking of kingdoms. Look again, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. You put those dates together, it's pretty easy to say it's December 18th, 520 B.C. It's almost as though Haggai preached in the morning service, and now we're told, guess what? He's preaching again in the evening service. And kids, I want to even encourage you in that reality. Did you know that God can speak to you more than once a day? <laughs> Sometimes, have you ever wondered if Christians seem to think that God can only speak in the morning? We wake up, and you should. Begin the day with God, but then it's quite easy, isn't it, to go the rest of the day without hearing from Him again? And so much of our life in Jesus Christ needs a constant feasting upon the truth of God's Word, morning, afternoon, and evening. A second time, discouraged people on the very same day need more encouragement about what God is getting ready to do. Look at verse 20 as it continues. End of verse 21, God's saying through Haggai, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. And that makes this fourth sermon of Haggai's ministry rather unique. Because if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that his previous sermons have actually been directed to Zerubbabel and also Joshua, the high priest. But, but this one is exclusively directed to Zerubbabel. So, so what do you know about Zerubbabel. The likelihood is you know almost nothing 
Because the Bible doesn't tell us too much about Zerubbabel. Of course, in this book, we know he's the governor of Judah, which really means nothing more than the Persian authorities at the time recognized that Zerubbabel was the leader in in the governance sense of the people there in Judah. Uh, That also means, of course, he must have had a unique and perhaps shaping role in, in the rebuilding of the temple. But all you need to know about Zerubbabel by this point is that he's a royal figure in the land. He, for all intents and purposes, without having the title, he's the king there in Judah. And notice, it's a promise, first of all, to Zerubbabel, a promise of, of judgment. Verse 21 continues, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, when God says he's going to shake something, it's really God's way of saying, I'm about to show up. It's God's way of saying, hey, a theophany is coming. Those of you that have been with us throughout this year, uh, we previously to Haggai were working through Exodus. And you might remember, God showed up on the Mount of Sinai and what happened? That mountain shook. God is saying, I'm about to show up. I am, of course, going to shake the heavens and the earth. This is going to be not just some localized shaking. This is not going to be some just particular and precise shattering. This is going to be much larger than that, which leads into what he says in verse 22. You see, he says, I'm also going to come, shake the heavens and the earth, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. If you wanted to know how complete and how total God's shaking of the kingdoms that he promises here is going to be. Uh, All you need to know is that this word overthrow, it's the same one that's used all the way back in Genesis chapter 19. With his shaking, with his shaking, with his shattering and overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says that type of destruction is on the way for everyone that is opposed to me, for all of my enemies. An overthrow is going to come. And of course, the ongoing parts of this text are calling back to other significant Old Testament stories. For kids, can you think of a time in which God in his judgment overthrew chariots and their riders? That was in the Red Sea, wasn't it? In the Exodus, bringing his people out of bondage and slavery, that the Red Sea and God's sovereign strength swallowed up all of his enemies. Or even the end of verse 22 says, And horses and the riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. You have other well-known stories in the Old Testament, like Judges chapter 7, where Gideon and his army of 300 men fight against the Midianites. And it's there in God's sovereign strength that he causes the Midianites to get into such a, a tizzy that they start killing each other. The same thing is said to happen even in the overthrow of Gog in Ezekiel chapter 38. It's meant to display this promise of judgment. It's meant to announce to you, of course, directly to Zerubbabel, Behold the power of your God. When a number of our kids were younger, we would often spend hours on the weekend playing with these building blocks and 
Uh, we had enough of them that we would build structures all the way up to the ceiling. Have to put sometimes chairs on chairs to make them all the way high enough to where the kids thought we were building something of our own Tower of Babel. But the point was, is, is once the, the final block would basically be within reach uh, of the ceiling, and now came the moment to destroy the tower. And sometimes that would happen, of course, with the kids running through the tower. Other times they'd take a big old truck and try to roll it through the tower. And of course, if you've ever done this before, sometimes, you know, all you have to do is just tap the tower and it'll fall. And that kind of power belongs to our sovereign God in this passage. I'm going to shake. I'm going to shatter, destroy, and overthrow all the kingdoms of the earth. And what a warning that ought to be, shouldn't it? To the kingdoms of the earth. That no government can stand against the Lord and not be shaken. No leader can scheme against his church and not be overthrown. No people can seek to thwart God's plan and not be destroyed. So this corporate reality isn't there to God's promise of judgment, which even points to this individual reality that, that calls you even this morning to consider your own citizenship. And the Bible tells us that, that true Christians, uh, they're citizens of heaven. But some of you sitting here today, and if you're honest with yourself, you're, you're really a citizen of the world. The time is coming if you remain in unbelief and unrepentance, that you too will be shaken overthrowed and destroyed. So what then would be a word of hope for someone like you? Well, that's what comes next in the setting of a king, verse 23. Notice what God says. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. A number of friends and I used to pass countless hours of boredom in our middle school years practicing our autographs because we believed that we were going to be world famous athletes. And of course, world famous athletes get asked all the time for their autographs. And so we wanted to ensure, even from the earliest age, that our autograph was practiced, that it was precise, that it was sleek and unique, that it would belong just to us. And God's saying to Zerubbabel that he is God's signature promise. He says, I will make you like a signet ring. Now, kids, I wonder if you know what a signet ring is. No one really uses them anymore. But in the ancient world, they were incredibly important for kings, for rulers and authorities. Because what would happen is you'd have these legal documents, these official statements, treaties and covenants that always would be put into power, laws enacted. And an ordinary way in which you would display the king's authority in that ruling, in that treaty, so on and so forth. As you, of course, take wax, you know, kind of pour it on there, and then he would take his signet ring into which was carved a, a precise pattern that belonged to him and him alone. And then he would stamp his authority into that wax. It was even a capital crime in most ancient Near Eastern cultures to copy the king's signet ring. So important was the king's signet ring that they more often than not wouldn't wear it on their fingers. They would wear it around their neck on a chain or a necklace to keep it quite close to their heart. And it would have been altogether... 
encouraging, perhaps even surprising for someone like Zerubbabel to hear that he was going to be God's signet ring. Because if you flip over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, uh, God is going to use this same language of a signet ring in Zerubbabel's family. This is going to be a word of rejection, not restoration. Because if you notice, Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24 and 25, finds Yahweh speaking to Zerubbabel's grandfather, a man named Kaniah. Other names that belong to him would be like Jehoiachim. And the Lord says, verse 24 of Jeremiah 22, As I live, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hands of those who seek your life. Such was the sin, such was the rebellion that belonged to Zerubbabel's grandfather, that the signet ring seemingly had been tossed aside from that family. But if you know anything about God's covenant grace, you know that he made a covenant with this man named David. That someone from his family would sit on the throne forever. So it really isn't possible for the signet ring to displace itself from David's family. Here it is, a reinstatement of God's covenant grace towards the Davidic line that Zerubbabel is going to be the signet ring. And I want some of you to be encouraged today in that truth of God's dealings, God's relationship with his covenant people, even the faithfulness that belongs to his covenant promises. Because of course what he's just said in Jeremiah's day, the signet ring is gone. And for two generations, it seems like what? The signet ring is gone. But now, with Zerubbabel, God's promise is back on track. Some of your own lives might speak to that kind of experience. Uh, that you're waiting on God's covenant promises to come to pass in your own life. And you're exhausted because you've been waiting for two weeks, for two months, some of you maybe for two years, others of you for two decades. What about two generations? And yet God is still faithful to his covenant promise. It tends to take longer than you would think, to come through a more surprising path than you might expect. But what shouldn't surprise you is that he remains faithful to his covenant promise despite his people's shortcomings. Because what's altogether interesting about this promise to Zerubbabel, who's going to be the signet ring, is that he never becomes king. So how then is it that this promise can actually encourage discouraged people to look to God's covenant king? We recently, a number of you know, we were on vacation up in Colorado, and one morning we had decided that we were going to take the children on this trail that had this terminus point in the Colorado River, which looked like a a pleasant place for the kids to play. And uh, those of you that have done such a thing before, you know, hiking along the way with six young children could have expected about how that hike went. Uh, we, We started out early in the morning when the sun was bright and spirits were high. The sun got higher and the sun got hotter. Tongues got drier, legs got weaker, 
And so kids began to say, Dad, do you really know where we're going? <laughs> or, I'm tired, let's just turn back. Or, a hundred steps on from the last point of water. Can we take another water break? And we often would say, no, let's keep going. Or we take a break, you know, and, and try to restore some energy along the way. Always encouraging, trust us. When you get to where we're going, it's going to be worth it. And I do think all the children would say it was even better than they expected that it was going to be. And don't you think the Christian life is often that way? He's placed you on this narrow trailhead. And so often troubles, trials, and temptations make you wonder, is it really worth it? I don't think I can keep going. I mean, I haven't even heard from him anytime soon. Those precious promises, well, they haven't come past come to pass in my life at all in recent memory. Yet the Lord, through His kindness, through His Word and Spirit, continually tells you, the end will be worth it. I will strengthen you. I can encourage your discouraged heart. And trust me, the end will even be better than you could ever possibly imagine. And so that's what He's saying, of course, to the people in Haggai's day. In your present circumstances, look forward to the certain future that belongs to you because of my choice in the coming King. So as we begin to close, let me see if I can help you in two final ways. Uh, notice these summary encouragements of our passage for your own uh, present struggles or situations. Number one, in the midst of those seasons of discouragement, look to God's sovereign power. I hope you can't mistake how if you just read through this text quite quickly, even at the basic surface level of a reading, uh, you would see that God is completely sovereign in his relationship with his people. Twice in this promise of judgment, he says, I am about to do something. I will do something. He says, of course, even to Zerubbabel himself, I will take you, for I have chosen you. I can topple kingdoms with the tip of my finger. What he's wanting to tell the people is, you know that I've done it before. I'm going to do it again. You know that all of the enemies that stand around you, and if you know the time of Haggai's ministry, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah complementing the story, they were surrounded by enemies. And God says what? I'll topple them too. Just like I've done it before. You can trust it in my sovereign strength to do it again. You might find yourself oppressed by a certain enemy. You might find yourself encompassed by a certain enemy. You might find yourself surrounded by a certain enemy. And God's saying the same thing to you, isn't he? Look, I've done it before. I promise. I'll do it again. Look to my sovereign power. Number two, finally, look to his sovereign promise. I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, for I have, have chosen you. And yet... Zerubbabel never becomes king. Because the promise really wasn't for Zerubbabel to be king, was it? It was for Zerubbabel to bring forth the king. If you had just three books to the right, Matthew's gospel begins in chapter 1 with this family tree of Jesus Christ. And verses 2 through 6 talks about Christ's lineage from Abraham to David, and then the subsequent verses turn to all of these kings there that bore forth the Redeemer in the fullness of time. And if you've turned to Matthew chapter 1, what you'll see tucked away in verse 12 is none other than Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. 
For God had chosen him, his servant. He will take Zerubbabel and bring forth from him, from his line, the coming king of kings. Who does what? Shake the nations. Even got echoes of that, didn't you, on the day of Christ's crucifixion when he was hanging there at the cross of Calvary, paying the sins and the penalty that deserved the punishment that belonged to his people. What did the earth do but shake? Three days later, what happened? God raised him from the dead. And what did the earth do but shake? And Jesus says, I'm coming back on a day in which I'm going to topple every nation. I'm going to crush every kingdom. I'm going to oppose and destroy every single ruler arrayed against me. But the good news of Jesus Christ is what? If you've come to him, be grateful that he has received you into an unshakable kingdom. Forever shaken your life may feel. However shattered your life may feel. The good news, of course, of of this coming king is that if you look to his sovereign promise, if you look to his sovereign power, you will never be moved because Christ is ruling and reigning. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would help us Perhaps those in the room with weak faith to have hearts strengthened, souls encouraged. That we might know your mercy, that we might know your faithfulness. That we might be obedient to that great command of which we read earlier to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so bring you the reverence and obedience that you alone are due. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.